All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word. Your word is beyond our ability to probe its depths. It is the light that illuminates our thinking so that we can perceive who you are, who we are. We can understand the basic problem that we have, which is sin, and your gracious provision in providing a salvation that is complete through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross who died in our place. Father, we are thankful that we have your word because it also illuminates our thinking to your plan and purpose in history to understand why we have gotten to where we are and where you are taking us. We must understand your word. Father, we pray that as we study today, we'll not only come to a greater understanding of your plan and purpose, especially in relation to the nation Israel, but also in relation to principles that apply to our own thinking and our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We'll begin in verse 33, but first a little review. What we're seeing throughout this section, really, as Jesus confronts the religious leaders of Israel, confronting the chief priests, confronting the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders of Israel is the fact that they have adopted an approach to relationship with God that is just as idolatrous as the religions that they had adopted during the Old Testament period. Continuously in the Old Testament, God warned them against idolatry. He warned them that he was to be worshipped as God alone and that all of these false gods were no gods. And he warned them that if they violated the covenant with him and were disloyal and committed treason, that God would visit a uh, various judgments and various divine stages of divine discipline against the nation, the most uh, horrid of which would be that God would remove them from the land that he had promised to give them to, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that God would scatter them among the nations, and that they would, uh, re- they would reap the consequences of their spiritual infidelity. When the Jews returned to the land from the captivity in Babylon, uh, God fulfilled his promise of discipline by having the northern kingdom destroyed by the Assyrians in 722, the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and when the Jews returned to the land, they set forth to not commit that same sin of idolatry again. 
And so in the development of, uh, of Pharisaism from the time of Ezra the priest up until the first century or second century B.C., there was this gradual de- development of what they came to call the, the, the uh, halakha, the oral law, the way of walking. It was a, their interpretation of the law that added a lot of traditions to it. And these traditions they thought of as a fence, as a fence that would protect the law so that uh, if they didn't commit certain, certain sins or if they didn't commit certain acts, it would protect them from violating any of the 613 commandments in the law. So they set up the, this, this fence around the law that, that took on the same authority as the law itself, as the Scripture. And so this, this, uh, this, became, this tradition was elevated to the level of, divine, um, of a divine mandate. We see the same kind of thing happen uh, in our own culture when you get into certain denominations. They decide that the best way to glorify God is to apply the scriptures in a certain way. And that may have to do with the style of clothing. That may have to do with avoiding certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of activities, and those uh, decisions then become uh, 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 instantiated in concrete, and they become as as authoritative as the Word of God. And this creates what we call legalism. And that was the problem with the religious leaders of Israel is they had created an, uh, a legal, an idolatry out of their legalistic application so that their ideas had the same authority as that of God. And so how they applied laws like the sabbatical laws, how they applied laws related to uh, spiritual cleanliness, these things went far beyond what was actually stated in the Mosaic Law. And so this was a, a more of a mental form of idolatry as opposed to the worship of gods made of stone or, or wood or metal. All idolatry, as we'll see, is grounded in arrogance, man thinking that he can somehow do things that will so impress God that God will bless them. That's the essence of legalism. Uh, the essence of grace is to recognize that not that we can do whatever we want to, grace isn't licentiousness, but grace is a realization that God has provided all of the solution, and the solution to sin is not our obedience, but the righteousness of Christ, which we receive at the instant of salvation. So what we see in this condemnation running through chapter 21, 22, and 23 uh, is this this problem of arrogance and the religious arrogance of the Pharisees. And so I've titled this lesson, The Arrogance of Legalism Blinds the Soul. It blinds the soul to, to grace. It blinds the soul to truth. And we end up rejecting God, being unable to see or understand his grace or his goodness because we're more concerned about uh, upholding our own opinion uh, rather than what he has said in his word. Now let's review just a minute as to where, where we've come from in this section. Uh, it actually begins back in verse 23 when Jesus came into the temple. 
He's confronted by the chief priests and elders who challenge his authority. They question him, what's the basis of your authority? How can you uh, do what you're doing, say what you're saying, teach what you're teaching? And Jesus, uh, in an extremely sophisticated manner, is going to turn this back on them. He uses, as I've pointed out the last two or three lessons, he uses their methodology against them. And he uses their the rabbinical Q&A question and answer technique against them. They have asked him to defend the basis for his authority, and he says, I'll do that, but first let me ask you a question. And the question he asks is related to John the Baptist, and it puts them on the horns of a dilemma because if they answer it one way, they will be Uh, condemned by the crowd. If they answer another way, they will also be condemned by the crowd. And we learn in their their statement that they fear the multitude. This will come up again in in the second parable, the one that we're studying this, this morning. And so Jesus doesn't directly answer their question about the basis for his authority. He avoids it, but then he answers it indirectly through three parables. And this is one of those sections of Scripture that's important. I have often read, you may have as well, uh, different writers, theologians, uh, dealing with different issues, topics, and they will focus on one or another of these three parables, but they don't take the time to recognize that these three parables stand together. They, they, there's a flow in the thought of Jesus as he presents these parables, and therefore they have to be understood within uh, that particular context. Each of these parable feature, parables excuse me, features a father, a son or sons, and a response to the father's authority. Thus we see in each of these parables a uh, part of the answer to the question, the challenge, uh, for G- the basis for Jesus' authority. In the first parable, uh, in, in the first parable, uh, and starting our, yes, in the first parable in verse 28, Jesus says, uh, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go today to work uh, in my vineyard. Let me get to that. Um, verse, verse 28. And then he develops this, and as he does so, he's pointing out again that the issue, the issue that he is expressing is that the Pharisees and the chief priests have failed to trust in God. This is, I brought out, pointed, uh, focused on this last time. Verse 32 in Jesus' final ex- statement and explanation of that first parable says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. So the contrast is between the religious leaders who did not believe John and the tax collectors and the prostitutes who did believe. That's the issue. And then Jesus drove the point home again, and he said, uh, and when you saw this, you did not afterwards. So they had a second chance. God is the God of grace and the God of many chances. So you did not afterward regret or, or relent and believe him. 
So the issue is belief. The issue in the gospel is always faith alone in Christ alone. It's not the feelings. That's what I pointed out last time when I looked at the difference between the word that's used here, metamelami, which is an emotional word, as well as the word uh, metanoeo, which is usually translated repent, and that word is not used here, but to understand that the issue in Scripture is to believe in Jesus. And that in our conclusion of the study last time is that the word repent is simply means to change your mind. So it's embedded within the idea of, of belief, to change your mind that Jesus is not important or Jesus isn't the Messiah, to, believe, to change your mind and believe that he is. At this point, Jesus introduces the next parable in verse 33. He says, hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when we look at this parable, we have to understand a couple of principles about parables. First of all, not every detail in a parable is significant spiritually. It's a story, the general story of which is designed to teach a general principle. There are details that are important that have application, and usually the Lord identifies what those elements are so that we can properly understand and interpret the parable. The parable here is reminiscent of some par- some stories and parables and, al- uh, and analogies that are used in the Old Testament. When you read, or you may hear a sermon, you will frequently hear that this parable is built off of an analogy that God uses in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, we read, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out the stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, and he also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes." In this analogy that is being used by Isaiah, which is very similar to how Jesus sets this up, Israel is the vineyard. And so you will find about 80% of commentarians make the statement that this is that the vineyard here is Israel. It's not. We have to pay careful attention to what Jesus says later on in the passage. I'll point that out in just a minute. He begins here another parable, so it's another of the same kind, and that first phrase tells us that what he is saying in the second parable is related to and develops out of what he is saying in the first parable, all of which is related to this authority question. We look at the the, um, parable, there are several elements to the parable. We have a landowner, we have a vineyard, we have a contract between the landowner and the vine dressers or tenant farmers that are going to uh, take care of the vineyard. We have a wall or a fence that is built around the vineyard. There's the mention of a wine press and a tower. Uh, 
and these tenant farmers are vine dressers. So we need to identify who these different elements uh, describe or what they describe. So first of all, we have the landowner. Now the Greek for the landowner is the word oikadespotes. Oikadespotes. It's a compound word. Oika comes from oikos, which means a house uh, or maybe a building, but oikos refers to a house. And despotes is a word for a master. We get our word uh, despot from this Greek word. So it refers to somebody primarily who has authority over a house. This is a, uh, describing God in terms of his sovereign control over human history. So the landowner represents God the Father, who is the creator God who rules over human history. The second element that we see is the vineyard. As I pointed out, uh, there are many who go back to Isaiah 5 and say the vineyard is Israel. That's about 80% true. It's got to be made more specific than that. But there's nothing in the context of what Jesus is saying that causes us to interpret what he is saying on the basis of Isaiah 5. That's just an assumption that is brought to the text. There's nothing there that indicates you have to go back to Isaiah 5 uh, in order to interpret what he is saying. In fact, what Jesus says when he interprets it to the uh, religious leaders, he says, therefore I say to you, he's talking to these religious leaders, to the um, uh, Pharisees and the, the chief priests and the scribes, he says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. Now, in the analogy of the parable, remember the vine dressers uh, are, uh, ha- don't ever give the, uh, the, the fruits of the vineyard to the landowner. To, so they, God never receives the fruit that was expected from the vineyard. And so the vine dressers are going to be taken away. And so the fact that the vine dressers um, are taken uh, indicates that that um, they're removed from the position. And so the vineyard that they're removed from is identified by Jesus in this statement as the kingdom of God. Further, we should notice that when he says the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation, if the vineyard represents Israel, then that would have to mean Israel is taken from you and given to another nation. That doesn't even make sense. So we can't interpret the vineyard here as Israel. We must interpret it as the kingdom that has been offered and rejected by Israel. Okay, The vineyard represents the theocratic kingdom that has been offered to Israel. What we have seen is all through, all through uh, the gospel, the kingdom of God is consistent with the Old Testament a promise and prophecy of the kingdom of God that this is a literal geophysical kingdom that is established on the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's bordered by the river of Egypt, the uh, uh, Euphrates River, and the Mediterranean. That is 
the promised land. It is a literal physical kingdom on the earth ruled by a king from the throne of David in Jerusalem. So this isn't a spiritual kingdom. This isn't a kingdom that has somehow been transformed from the physical concept in the Old Testament to a spiritual concept in the New Testament. It's not a kingdom that is in our hearts. Therefore, it doesn't fit what is the amillennial interpretation of the Bible, that there's no literal, physical, uh, Jewish-based kingdom in the future, that the church age is the kingdom of God, and this is now ruled by Jesus, who's sitting on the throne of David in heaven. Uh, this is a spiritualized or allegorical interpretation. It is grounded in a theology that is known as replacement theology. We'll look at that in just a minute. So it's very clear that the kingdom of God, Jesus mentions in verse 43, is this literal geophysical kingdom, the one that John the Baptist announced, that he announced, that the leaders rejected. And so he's talking about the fact that, again, what he, what he announced in Matthew 12, that this kingdom will be taken from them, from you. And he's talking to the religious leaders. And it's important to understand that he's not talking to the to all of Israel, to all of ethnic Israel. He is talking to the religious leaders and their failure. And this is seen in verse 45. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them, not of Israel, okay, but of them. So this is going to be a condemnation of that leadership at that time in Israel's history. So the landowner is God. The vineyard represents the kingdom offered to Israel and rejected by the religious leaders. And there is a contract mentioned as the landowner uh, hires these vine dressers. He leased it to vine dressers. There's a contract there that represents the Mosaic Covenant where God uh, delegated uh, this to Israel to and the leaders of Israel to rule over the nation. So it's the Mosaic Covenant is the contract. Now there's three things that are mentioned together that there is a fence that is built around the vineyard there's a wine press where the grapes would be crushed and the juice will run out. This would be made usually in, uh, in Israel. What you'll find is that they'll, there's a lot of rocks there. And they'll find a large rock and then they will chisel out that rock and hollow it out and have a slope in it and then chisel out a drain. And that becomes uh, the wine press where they press out the grapes. And then there's a tower built. So the wall of the fence is designed to keep the thieves out so that they don't come in near harvest time and steal the grapes. The wine press is to develop the production and to create a profit from the vineyard. And the tower is a watchtower so that during the time that as, as the uh, grapes near, near the ripening stage, then they can, uh, they can have a guard there to protect the vineyard. Each of these together, you can't build a case for each one refers to something. Each of these together show the attention and the care of the landowner 
to provide for the security and productivity of the vineyard. This is the idea. God has provided everything for Israel. He is their security. He is depicted in the Psalms as their strong fortress, as their tower. He is the one who hedges them about. He is the one who builds that protection. So what all of this is designed to do in the parable is to show that the landowner has provided everything necessary for the productivity of the vineyard, and then he goes into a far country. Now, that uh, is just as part of the story. He is an absentee landlord, but he has uh, leased out this to these tenant farmers or vine dressers, and they are identified by verse uh, 45 as the religious leaders of that generation. It's that generation that has rejected the offer of the kingdom, and it's that generation that is going to come under judgment that is fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem is overrun uh, by the Romans and the temple is destroyed. So this refers to the religious leaders of that generation, and it's the religious leaders who lose access to the kingdom. It's not Israel. That's why if the vineyard is Israel, then you've got a problem. But if the vineyard is the kingdom and the parable is about the loss of authority of the, of the religious leaders and judgment on them, then you realize Jesus is not saying that Israel is going to lose the kingdom forever and ever. And the reason that is important is in church history, this is one of several verses that have been used to teach what is known as replacement theology. Now, Matthew twenty-one forty-three says that it is the kingdom of God that's taken from you, that is the religious leaders, not from Israel, but from, from you. Now, this thing that I mentioned, replacement theology, I've had some questions about it recently. I mentioned it uh, two or three weeks ago when we talked about Jesus uh, cursing the fig tree, which uh, depicts the the overall theme here. When Jesus um, uh, cursed the fig tree, it was because he found no fruit on the fig tree. Now we have a further development in this parable that the vineyard isn't Uh, The fruit isn't being produced for the landowner, for the one who should receive it. Now, let me give you a a couple of definitions of replacement theology. I gave you a couple when I mentioned this before. These are, this one is the same, and I'm going to add a new one. Ronald DePros in his book, Israel and the Church, which is a study of replacement theology, says that, defines it this way, the church completely and permanently replaced ethnic Israel in the working out of God's plan and as a recipient of Old Testament promises to Israel. So that when God promised a specific piece of real estate to Abraham, bounded by the Mediterranean, the Euphrates, and the river of Egypt, that that, that Abraham thought that referred to a piece of real estate. But now in the New Testament, we realize it really meant heaven. So there's a change in terminology because they've moved from a literal interpretation to an allegorical interpretation. And in most forms of replacement theology, the New Testament is used to interpret the Old Testament. And Israel becomes almost, the significance of Israel becomes irrelevant and um, 
and unimportant. Another work that has been done has been written by Michael Vlock, who's a professor at the Master's uh, Seminary. He's given several papers on this at pre-trib, and he says there's a couple of important features to replacement theology. First of all, the nation Israel has somehow completed or forfeited its status as the people of God and will never again possess a unique role or function apart from the church. The church is what's important, not Israel. And so modern Israel has no significance and never will have a significance in God's plan or purpose because God is through with Israel. The second aspect is that the church is now the true Israel that has permanently replaced or superseded national Israel as the people of God. Now that word superseded is important because the, the more academic term for this is called supersessionism, and that's becoming a little more popularly used uh, today. So uh, Michael Vlock concludes that the, his definition that the church is the new and or true Israel that has forever superseded the nation Israel as the people of God. Now the danger with replacement theology and replacement theology goes back to the mid-first centuries, the first time that it is articulated that Israel will no longer have a uh, perp- place or purpose in God's plan. It develops over the next uh, two or three hundred years until it becomes the, the formal position of the Roman Catholic Church by the time of Augustine, who's the Bishop of Hippo and the great theologian of the, uh, of the early medieval church. In um, by the time of Augustine, allegorical interpretation has become the only acceptable interpretation uh, of the Bible in the Roman Catholic Church, and this shapes everything through the period of the Middle Ages. And in fact, it shaped the thinking of the early reformers: uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, these early reformers in the Reformation never quite got away from replacement theology. And so their theological systems that still exist today, such as Lutheranism, uh, most forms of Calvinism in terms of covenant theology, and uh, some of the other forms that came out of the of the uh, Reformation period still hold to uh, replacement theology. Now, replacement theology is not necessarily anti-Semitic, but it is the, it's the soil out of which Christian anti-Semitism developed, and it's the soil out of which uh, the horrors of the Holocaust developed. Not everyone who holds to a form of replacement theology is necessarily anti-Semitic, but that's where it automatically and eventually leads if you follow it out uh, to its logical conclusion. Now, when we talk about replacement theology, some, somebody asked me just recently, said, well, what's the, what's the relationship of covenant theology to replacement theology? Well, covenant theology is just one form or expression of replacement theology. Covenant theology was developed within the history of Calvinism in the late 1600s. 
and yet replacement theology goes further. So most systems of theology have some form of replacement theology in them. Some are more extreme. Some teach that because God is punishing Israel because they rejected and crucified Jesus, then Christians should also punish and and be harsh towards Jews. That is the most extreme form of replacement theology. A lot of replacement theology is milder than that and doesn't uh, go that far and would reject, especially since the Holocaust, uh, try to reject elements some of those harsher harsher elements. But they still have a form of replacement theology. The Pope has come out uh, and uh, stated the Roman Catholic Church no longer holds to replacement theology. What he's talking about is they don't, they're, they're, they're trying to say they don't hold to the harsher forms of replacement theology, but they still hold to forms of replacement theology. Uh, many other groups, because what's happened in the way language games are played in the last uh, 50 or 60 years, they've defined replacement theology as that which, re- which uh, produced the Holocaust. We don't, uh, we don't agree with the Holocaust. That was an extreme and wrong application of replacement theology, so therefore we don't believe in replacement theology. But we still believe that Israel no longer has a place in God's plan. It's been replaced by the church. So it's just, it's just word games. And what we'll see is that in nations that have, a, have their history grounded in the replacement theology of the Middle Ages, that it, it's the, their anti-Semitism is just below the surface. You can see this in modern France. Uh, after the Holocaust, everybody pulled back. They tried to cover up their anti-Semitism. But in the last five or six years, there have been more and more instances in France of uh, synagogues being burnt, of uh, Nazi graffiti being put on synagogues, of, uh, of uh, people being uh, assaulted, in Jews being assaulted in the street, things of this nature. And it's not just coming from the Muslims that are living in France. It's also coming from uh, the non-Muslim community. So that, that anti-Semitism was just beneath the surface. And even though they... Uh, they're no longer what we would call very religious in, in France. They're still influenced by those ideas that came out of the replacement theology in, in their history. So Matthew twenty one forty three has been one of those verses that has been used to try to support um, this replacement theology. Also, Matthew twenty one nineteen, as I mentioned earlier, when Jesus cursed the fig tree and he said, let no fruit grow on you ever again, immediately the fig tree withered away. These are not verses that are announcing a permanent eternal judgment on Israel, but a judgment on that generation, consistent with Matthew 12 and other passages that it was that generation that was receiving this judgment. Now, how do we, how do we, um, as we look at this, how do we understand that? Well, first of all, uh, before I continue with uh, the replacement theology, the basic problem that they had at this time, that generation, was legalism. And that's what is being judged. Now, in defining legalism, a lot of people get confused over this. Legalism is not coming along and saying, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. There are more imperatives in the New Testament 
than in the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. Saying thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that is not legalism. Legalism is when the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots don't have anything to do with the specifics of Scripture. So legalism is basically man seeking God's approval for his own works of righteousness. I'm going to go do good. I'm going to give to charities. I'm going to help people. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to uh, give to the church. I'm going to do Christian service, and somehow God's going to bless me for that. That's the idea, basically, uh, basically of legalism. So, secondly, legalism, therefore, is the product of human arrogance. Human arrogance is the opposite of submission to God's authority. So it's man saying, I'm going to define what righteousness is, and then I'm going to produce my definition of righteousness, and God is going to bless me. Third point is that all arrogance blinds us to the truth. Arrogance is blinding, and arrogance is also tenacious. It's hard to get rid of our arrogance, and we have to face that. Our sin nature is grounded in arrogance. And it affects every single one of us. And even at times when we are, uh, we think we're not being arrogant, it's just a pseudo form of humility. Fourth, legalism, uh, uh, fourth is a commitment to arrogance always leads toward hostility to God. And so what happens is when Jesus comes along and tells the, the uh, religious leaders that they're wrong, they're going to react. They want to kill him because that is what happens in arrogance. We're being told that we're wrong, and we want to destroy the person who tells us that we're wrong. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. Just a quick reminder. In Romans 1, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Arrogance suppresses truth in unrighteousness. He goes on to say that everybody knows that God exists because his existence is evidenced externally, but it's also manifest within them. And then he goes on to say that, that how Romans 1.20, that this is clear from the creation of the world and that everybody knows God, but they don't glorify him as God in verse 21. And then verses 22 and 23, he says, professing to be wise, they became fools. That applies to the religious leaders of Israel and all religious leaders, not Christian leaders, not those who are grace-oriented, but those who are oriented to human works. They profess to be wise, but they become fools. And notice what they do. They change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. See, that's overt legalism. But in Pharisaism, in religious legalism, it's worshiping our own ideas about God, and that becomes a cerebral legalism. So religious legalism is a form of idolatry, the idolatry of personal morality and religious activity. Now, having understood that, that's the problem. Paul goes on to talk about other things in Romans, and eventually he deals with the issue of Israel. This is, goes to the issue of replacement theology. In Romans chapter 11, Paul clearly affirms that while God has temporarily set aside Israel, it is not permanent. In Romans 11.1, 1, he raises the first question, has God cast away his people? 
And he, he forcefully says no. He says certainly not. In the Greek, it's meganoida. It is a strong rejection. He says not at all. For I am an Israelite, seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. And so he is reflecting in Romans 1 uh, that he's going to reflect the same idea that we see developed in Jesus' telling of the parable in verses 34 to 36 of Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, 34 to 36, Jesus says, Now when the vintage time came, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And what did the vine dressers do? Well, to the first group, they beat one, they killed one, and they stoned another. And so the landowner sends a second group. Verse 36, and they did likewise to them, Jesus said. Now, now we can't really press as to who these are. Maybe it's the former prophets and the later prophets, but, but we really can't press. It's the idea that God is sending the prophets, and they are rejected by the religious leadership of Israel. They stoned them, and they killed them. This is the same thing Paul says in Romans eleven three through 5. He's quoting Elijah in 11.3, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. This goes back to 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. This is what was happening in Israel uh, during the time of the kings. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 4, but what does the divine response say to him? What did God say when, it, when Elijah had his pity party and said, I'm the only one left that killed everybody else? God said, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. There's a remnant. Remnant is a term that always refers to the remnant of Israel. The church is not a remnant. Remnant isn't church terminology. It's Israel terminology. And God always has a remnant, the 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, Paul says, at this present time, that is, at the time, the apostolic period, he says, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, these are the Jews that accept Jesus as Messiah. There is, he says, at that time, in the early church, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, I'm going to skip a lot of Romans 11. It would take forever. But when we get down to Romans 11, 11, he asks his second question. He says, I say then, have they, that is, national ethnic Israel, have they stumbled? And the idea in that word there is a permanent stumbling. He says, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. So the second, no, not at all, meganoida. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall, that is the fall to apostasy of ethnic Israel, is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? That indicates there's going to be a future fullness for Israel. This is what Paul will conclude with at the end of the chapter. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, something that had not been revealed before, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until something happens. That word until indicates that something in the future will happen to change this. 
The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then he says, and thus, in this manner, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away in godliness from Jacob. So Romans 11, 25 down through 29, makes it clear that there's a future for Israel, and when Paul concludes, he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God called out Israel for a specific purpose. So while Israel is temporarily set aside in God's plan, and the church is the way in which God is working today, there will be a change in the future, and God has a future plan and purpose for the nation Israel. So you can't go, as the replacement theologians do, to allegorize the New Testament and say there's no purpose for Israel. And another point, I had one person say, yes, but Israel today is apostate. They're not accepting Jesus as Messiah, so they're not important. Well, wait a minute. Let's look at the Old Testament. How many times in the Old Testament was, were the Israelites apostate and in rebellion against God? And how many times did God punish those who treated them poorly out of anti-Semitism even though Israel was apostate. The promise of God in the Abrahamic covenant that I will bless those who bless you does not say I will bless those who bless you when you're spiritually correct. It doesn't say I will curse those who curse you when you're spiritually correct. But when you're apostate, it doesn't matter. See, that's not what the text says. The text says that it doesn't matter whether you're obedient, disobedient, apostate, or spiritual. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so God has a plan and a purpose for for Israel. Back to our parable. Then last of all, he, the landowner, sent his son to them saying, they'll respect my son. First time we have the use of huias in these parables, the word for son back in this first parable was really just male children that could apply to an adult child. Uh, Jesus doesn't use huios until it gets to this point so that it's clear he's talking about himself as the son of God. They will re- the, the father sends the son saying they will respect my son, but when the vine dresser saw the son who comes with the authority of the father... They said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. A clear allusion to the coming crucifixion. This is Monday or Tuesday. By the end of the week, Jesus will be crucified. So this is talking about, and and he's indicting them. So then Jesus doesn't interpret the parable at this point. In good rabbinical fashion, he asked them to interpret it for him. What should happen to the vine dressers? What should the owner of the vineyard do? See, a lot of times when we're talking to people, we don't ask enough questions and we don't pause to let them answer. It's important when you're talking to unbelievers, ask them questions. Let them come to conclusions as they think through it themselves. That's what Jesus is doing. He's going to give, enough, give them enough rub so that they hang themselves. They can't escape the obvious. They answer him and they say, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits 
in their seasons. Now, remember what John the Baptist said at the beginning? He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to see what in the world was going on down there in the Jordan Valley. And he called them what? He called them the seed of the serpent. You, 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 you vipers, you seeds of vipers, sons of vipers. And that's the seed of the serpent. He identifies them as descendants of the serpent in the garden. And he says, produce works or fruit in keeping with repentance. See, there's no fruit. There's no fruit on the fig tree. There's no fruit in the vineyard that's getting to the owner of the vineyard because of legalism. Legalism can't produce fruit that counts. And so it's going to be given to somebody else because they have failed in their stewardship of the nation, their spiritual stewardship of the nation. And then Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Now, I've pointed this out many times recently. The Pharisees, especially the scribes and the chief priests, were the ones who really knew the scriptures. They had memorized the scripture. Many of them had the entire Old Testament memorized. The scribes especially, they had very carefully and painstakingly copied the text over and over and over again. Uh, They almost paint each letter. And they would sing little songs with each word to remind them. And so there were very, very few mistakes that were ever made in the copying of Scripture. They had read it over and over again. Now, if you're young and you've been indoctrinated in political correctness and the greatest sin in modern culture today is not offending anybody, then Jesus sounds like a great sinner here because he is really offending the Pharisees. See, there's nothing wrong to offend somebody in the right way. But that doesn't mean we go around offending everybody. Jesus didn't say this to everybody he met. He only said it to the arrogant, hypocritical religious leaders who claimed to be the national and only interpreters of the Word of God. And he says they've got it dead wrong. He says, haven't you ever read this? Knowing full well they have, but they've misinterpreted it. And he goes to Psalm 118, Psalm 118.22, where he quotes from the statement we studied all of the psalm, if you remember, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In the context that referred to Israel that had been overlooked by the builders of empires and had been captured and deported, but God restored them to fulfill his plan and purpose. This verse is applied in a number of places to Jesus in the New Testament as the representative of true Israel. He's become the chief cornerstone, the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Peter refers to this in Acts 4, 10, and 11. I'm not going to spend time looking at that, but he defines Jesus as a stone which was rejected by you builders. He's applying it to the religious leaders. Romans uh, 9.30, G- uh, Paul uses the stumbling stone uh, metaphor, which is a quote from Isaiah 28.16, where God says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. It ref- references the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess where else this allusion is found? The direct quote of Psalm 118.22. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll start getting into that on Thursday night. All of this ties together. So the problem that they had was legalism. 
They were ignorant of God's righteousness, and they sought to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. And then Jesus makes this statement that says, I'm going to take the kingdom of God from you, that is the religious leaders, and give it to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, there's two views here. And act, act, two views, and that is the nation, one view is, which is the view I believe, that the word nation here refers to a future nation of Israel, the nation at the end of the tribulation period that will accept Jesus as Messiah. There are others who take nation here as referring to Gentiles, but it's not a plural, so it's not necessarily talking to, to um uh, talking about Gentiles, and of those who take this as referring to uh, a future Gentile nation, there are two groups. Very conservative a group of people, Stan Toussaint, uh, Georgian H. Peters, Theocratic Kingdom, Alva McLean. These are all people who would agree 100% with everything I've said about the kingdom. And they take it as applying to the church. I don't think they're right for a number of reasons I won't go into this morning. Then there are others like Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, Kenneth Weist, a number of others who recognize that this refers to the future generation, I mean, to a future nation of Israel that will respond. Alan Ross, one of my Hebrew professors at Dallas, all of these people, I think, have it's talking about that God is going to give this, the kingdom, to a future Generation, because it's going to be a future Jewish kingdom. Now, some of those other people I mentioned, Stan Toussaint, uh, George and H. Peters, uh, Alvin McLean, they also believe in a future Jewish-based kingdom. So there's there's a lot of debate over this, which is something I've spent hours trying to wade my way through the last few weeks. And then Jesus shifts in Matthew twenty-one forty-four, having quoted from Psalm one hundred eighteen twenty-two. He shifts the imagery. He changes the metaphor from the metaphor of the uh, uh, of the vineyard to the stone. And he says, whoever falls on this stone, that is the chief cornerstone, the head of the corner. He said, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So there's two statements here. One is that there are those who are going to fall on the stone, and that would refer to those who reject Jesus as Messiah, and they will be judged. And then there's a second group, those on whomever the stone falls, which indicates a judgment by Jesus, and he's the one to whom all judgment is given in John 5, 25 to 27, that they will be crushed or scattered. And that might be an indication of the scattering of the Jewish people after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so when it concludes, the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables were told. They perceived that he was talking about them. That's key. He's not talking about future generations. He's not wiping out all future for Israel. He's bringing judgment on that generation just as he did the generation in 586 and the generation in the northern kingdom of Israel in 722. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they're angry because he's challenged the very core of their belief system. They couldn't do it because they feared the multitudes. That's the second time we're told that they feared the multitudes. Because they, that is the crowd, took him, Jesus, for a prophet. The people who are listening to Jesus understood he was the Messiah. And so they are too numerous at this point. So the 
uh, chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees have to go back and plot some more. And we'll see how this develops into the next parable in chapter 22 next time, which is one that is often taken out of context and also misused. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things today. We're reminded of your grace toward Israel, your grace in calling out Abraham in the midst of a pagan pagan world at the time, that through him you would work out your plan of salvation. We're mindful that even though the leaders of Israel at that time rejected Jesus' claims to be Messiah, that you have not uh, permanently rejected Israel, that you will in turn and in time fulfill your promises to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to Israel in the Old Testament. Father, we pray for us, for anyone listening, that they would come to understand that the foundation here, something that the Pharisees un- understood and rejected, but the crowds understood and accepted, is that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. He claims to be the one who fulfills the promises from the Old Testament, and he claims to be the Messiah, the one and the only one through whom we can have eternal life. He claimed to be God himself, He stating, I and the Father are one. Because he is the God-man, he is the one who could pay for our sins, and he is the only one through whom we can have eternal salvation. If there's anyone listening who's never trusted Christ as Savior, this is your opportunity to do so, that you can simply respond by believing, trusting in Jesus for your salvation, that he died for your sins, and at that instant, you have eternal life, and you do never worry about what will happen at death again. You will spend eternity with God in heaven. Now, Father, we pray that you will challenge us with what we've studied uh, this morning. In Christ's name, amen.